Well, good morning again, church. As we continue our worship in the Word, um, I wanted to take a moment to pray for someone in our church family. He's on our heart this morning, Wade Taylor. Tomorrow he's got a surgery out in Boston, and so I thought we could pray for him this morning. Um, I know that there are many unspoken prayer requests among our body, and so if ever you want prayer, uh, you can let us know on a connection card. We want you to know we we would love to pray for you, even if it's just for the pastors of the church or the leadership of the church. Um, we believe in the power of prayer because we believe in the power of our God. And so let me begin in prayer, and then we'll uh, dig into the word this morning. Heavenly Father, we are just so grateful to gather together in worship, uh, to declare this is the day that you have made, the day we're going to rejoice and be glad in, knowing that you, O oh God, are in control. Lord, I want to lift up Wade Taylor to you this morning as he's preparing to go into surgery tomorrow. We pray for his peace of mind. We pray for his family's peace of mind. We pray for the doctors and the surgeons that you would guide and lead them, give them steady hands. And Father, we pray that this surgery would be effective and that he would recover fine, Lord. We pray that he would come out on the other side doing well. And we pray for healing whether through this surgery that it would be the last or before they go in, Lord, that you would just provide a miracle. We look to you as the provider of all things. Father, as we transition to worship you in your word this morning, our ask, Lord, is that you would remove any distraction, that you would get us out of the way. We know not teach us what we have not give us. We are not in Christ. We ask that you'd make us, and we ask it all in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. A wise person once said, uh, there are two processes that you should never go into prematurely. The first is that of the embalming of a body. That makes a lot of sense. And the other is that of divorce. Uh, what those two processes have in common is they both have death involved. One, the death of a body. The other, the death of a marriage. And what I want to take some time to chat with you about this morning is what does God's word has to have to say on the subject of divorce and the possibility of remarriage. And so I'd like to invite you, if you have your Bibles with you, to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 19. We're going to be looking at the first 12 verses together as we're going to consider what Jesus taught on the subject matter. You know, if there is a subject that is relevant, especially as we're continuing through this series on the family that we've entitled Family Matters, this is a relevant one because in some way, many, if not all of us here this morning have been impacted by a divorce indirectly or directly. Some of you have gone through a divorce. Others this morning know of someone who has gone through a divorce. Maybe you experienced the divorce of parents as a child. And so what the Bible has to say on the subject is, is needed. According to some statistics from Focus on the Family, every day in the United States, 2,000 marriages will end in divorce. We also learned that the average marriage lasts on average about eight years. When you take a look at the stats, Christian marriages among believers, 24% uh, of those who attend church regularly admit and um, report that their marriage is struggling. And just finding the latest statistics on marriages and divorce rates within the church, anywhere between 25 and 33% of all Christian marriages will end in divorce. And so this morning, we're going to take some time to consider what does Jesus have to say on the subject? 
What does God's word have to say on this very sensitive subject? As you turn to Matthew chapter 19, Jesus is transitioning in his ministry from Galilee to the region of Judea, and he's headed to Jerusalem where he's going to suffer, he's going to die, and the third day he's going to rise from the dead. And as he makes his journey there, multitudes begin to follow him, and he continues to show compassion to the crowds as he heals them. And then the subject of the question about divorce comes up, And we're going to see what Jesus has to say on the subject. Would you stand in honor of the reading of the word? We're in Matthew chapter 19, looking at the first 12 verses. Now it came to pass, when Jesus had finished these sayings, that he departed from Galilee and came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And great multitudes followed him, and he healed them there. The Pharisees also came to him, testing him and saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? He said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. His disciples said to him, if such is the case of the man with his wife... It's better not to marry. But he said to them, All cannot accept this saying, but only to those whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born thus from their mother's womb. There are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He who is able to accept it, let him accept it. The word of the Lord, y'all may be seated this morning in the presence of God together. This morning... We're going to talk about what Jesus taught on the subject of divorce and the possibility of remarriage. We're going to consider just a few principles together. The first one we learn in the first six verses together is Jesus taught that divorce is a departure from God's original design. Divorce is a departure from God's original design. Before we get into how Jesus taught on this principle, we're introduced to the setting in the first couple verses. As we said earlier, Jesus is transitioning in his ministry from the region of Galilee to the region of Judea. And this is significant for a couple of reasons. Number one, because Jesus is not going to minister in Galilee again until after his resurrection. And so Jesus is making one last trip headed for Jerusalem because in Matthew chapter 16, verse 21, Jesus predicted that he would suffer, he would go to Jerusalem to suffer, 
at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, that he would be killed, and the third day that he would rise from the dead. And so as Jesus makes this transition in ministry, it's significant because he's on mission. He's got a purpose in mind. He's going to fulfill the reason for why he came from heaven to earth to go to a cross to die for our sins in order to provide salvation as a gift to anyone who might receive it. And so this is significant as Jesus is heading down to Judea, heading up to Jerusalem because it's higher in elevation. He is going to die for the sins of humanity. But even as he goes there, he still with compassion continues to minister to the people. Multitudes continue to follow him and he continues to heal the crowds demonstrating that he is the Messiah. He is the promised king of Israel. He demonstrates his power by healing all who come and the text shows us Jesus in compassion not only heals but he answers questions as Pharisees who have the wrong motives are asking even questions on divorce. And so it's significant because of why Jesus is headed there. Second reason it's significant is because as Jesus, according to verse 2, ministers in Judea, it tells us that he ministers um, uh, 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 um, ahead of the, uh, the Jordan River. Let me read that specifically. And great multitudes followed him, he healed them, and that he departed from Galilee and came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. So we're talking about beyond the Jordan. We're talking about east of the Jordan, um, between the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea. And this is significant because the area where Jesus is ministering is, is known as Perea. And the reason that's significant is because uh, Herod Antipas was actually the one who ruled over that area. And if you go back to Matthew chapter 14, verses 3 to 8, you learn that Herod Antipas, who rules over this area, is actually the guy who had put John the Baptist to death. He had him arrested and put to death. And that's significant because the reason he had John the Baptist arrested is because John the Baptist was openly criticizing his illegitimate divorce and remarriage to his brother's wife, Herodias. And so he put him in prison, but, but Herod Antipas knew that John the Baptist was a prophet, so he didn't want to, or at least people said he was a prophet, so he didn't want to put him to death. But one day, Herodias' daughter was dancing before him, and Herod was impressed, and he said, whatever you want, I'll give it to you. And Herodias' daughter was told by her mother, why don't you ask for the head of John the Baptist on a platter? And so Herod Antipas, he goes and has John the Baptist executed and has his head placed on a platter given to the daughter and the daughter presents it to Herodias. I don't think it's coincidence that now Jesus is ministering in that area and the Pharisees just happened to ask the question about divorce, perhaps seeking to stir up some kind of political controversy so that what happened to John the Baptist would ultimately happen to Christ. And so that's a significant fact that we read about back in Matthew chapter 14. And so we're introduced to the setting as Jesus continues his ministry and multitudes are coming and people are being healed, but among the multitudes are the Pharisees. These are the Jewish leaders of the day. These are those who knew the, the law of Moses backwards and forwards, and it says the Pharisees also came to him testing him. And so we know that this is a legitimate question and we learn something from it, but the intentions of the Pharisees was in order to challenge Jesus, was in order to entrap Jesus. 
There is a rising tension and has been throughout the ministry of Jesus over these three years that will culminate in his crucifixion on the cross, but there is a rising tension between Jesus and the Jewish leaders, and what they'd like to do is entrap him or slander his reputation or have him contradict Moses as they're going to ask a series of questions. And so what their desire is, is that the people would no longer flock towards Jesus, but rather that something terrible would happen to, the, to him. And so it says, testing him and saying, and they ask this question, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? I want you to know that when they ask this question, it's carefully crafted. And the reason it's carefully crafted is because just as divorce and the possibility of remarriage might be a controversial subject in the world and in the church today, it was also controversial back then. And there were two groups of thought back in that day. You had two well-known rabbis, Rabbi Hillel and Rabbi Shammai, who had two differing views on divorce. Rabbi Hillel was the more liberal Thinker. And what he basically said was that you could, a man could divorce his wife for almost any reason. If she put too much salt in his food, that's it, give her a certificate of divorce. If she burns his bagel, that's enough. And so Hillel said, for almost any reason, you can divorce your wife. Shammai, on the other hand, during that day, said, you can only divorce your wife if a sexual offense takes place. And so there are these two differing thoughts, two schools of thought, and so they're putting Jesus in a place to contradict at least one of them. And so they know however Jesus answers, this is going to entrap him, and this may not be good for him. And so they ask him in order to test him, can you divorce your, can a man divorce his wife for any reason at all? Are you pro-Hillel or are you pro-Shammai? And Jesus answers, not by giving them the answer they desire, he answers with a question, and he tells those who should be experts in the law of Moses, haven't you read what the scriptures say about God's original design for marriage. The text goes on and it says, and he answered them, have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? So the question is presented, what does Jesus have to say about divorce and the possibility of remarriage? In what cases is it permissible? Before we even talk about the biblical grounds for divorce, Jesus points us back to his original design. And what we need to be reminded of, if ever the question is presented to us personally, or whether it's presented to us in terms of counsel to others, our job isn't to give our advice or to provide um, uh, some counsel and based on our experience or the books we've read, but our job is to go back to Scripture is to go back to what God's word has to say on the matter. And Jesus says, have you not read, in the beginning God made them male and female. Don't you know that God is the creator? Last time we were together, we talked about God's design for marriage. And we talked about Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 to 25. We talked about the design and definition for marriage. And Jesus goes into that Further, he says in verse 5, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. If you were with us yesterday, last time, we talked about God's definition and design for marriage is that a man should leave, should cleave, and should become one flesh. To leave 
is that a man should leave his father and his mother. The strongest bond that uh, a husband or wife has is not with a parent or not with a child, it is with their spouse. That's God's priority. And so when it says leave, you are to leave your father and mother and be joined to your wife. And so leaving is one thing, cleaving is another. When it says join, it literally means to be joined together like glue. When we're talking about glue, we're talking about super glue here. If you've ever glued some things together with super glue and then you maybe messed up because you didn't line it up properly, I mean, if you're going to rip that apart, it's going to get messy. And so God's design from the very beginning is that you would leave your father and mother. Your top priority in terms of your human relationship, second to God, should be your spouse. God's design from the very beginning is that you would be joined to your wife, and then it says, and become one flesh, to be united sexually, physically, spiritually, emotionally, all of the above, you become one flesh. And there is a, a sacredness of marriage that is set apart as God has created that bond. And Jesus concludes by saying this in the next verse. He says, verse six, so then they are no longer two, but one flesh. What we were told as you read Genesis 2 is that husband and wives are like complementary partners, two puzzle pieces that are put together, but they're glued together. You know, I don't know if you have folks or perhaps you this morning, you like to put together puzzles, but I have someone in our family who puts together puzzles, but as they do, after they're done, they glue them together. And then they use those puzzles and put them perhaps on the walls sometimes and and if ever those, those pieces, and she decided, you know, I'm going to take this puzzle apart, because she's already glued it together, that thing's going to get messed. She's going to mess the whole thing up. If she rips out those puzzle pieces, you won't be able to put them back together as you would desire. And so what Jesus says in verse 6 is, so then they are no longer one, but, uh, two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man Separate. Jesus says that if God joined you together as husband and wife, let no one separate you. Let no one cause that individual to divorce. And so what Jesus is saying right off the bat before we even talk about the biblical grounds of divorce in Scripture is that divorce is a departure from God's original design. What God has brought together let no man separate. This morning, we get to take a, a moment to consider, if you're married in the room, how God brought supernatural circumstances together in order for you and your spouse to be together. Whether you realize it or not, you thought you made the decision to marry your spouse, and you may have, but God is the one who sealed you together in marriage. I get to think back to how my wife and I came together. I think about the circumstances. My wife wasn't born in the U.S. She was born in Cambodia. At the age of 10 years old, her parents brought her to the States. They moved to Missouri and then eventually moved to Arizona. 
I just happened to choose to go to the University of Arizona. My wife chose to go to the same university. We worked in the same place. We were in student housing together. We got to meet each other. I got to share the gospel with her. I got to see her come to faith in Jesus. And as I look back on the supernatural circumstances of God bringing us together, I'm reminded that I may have made the choice and said, she is going to be my wife, but God's the one who seals us together. And it's a reminder for anyone here this morning that whoever you are married to, God's the one who brought you together, even if you say, you know, I think it might have been a mistake. I think I might have married the wrong person. What we're told in Scripture, what God has brought together, let no man separate, let no man divorce. And so what we're reminded in the first six verses is when we're talking about divorce, the way Jesus talks about the subject is that divorce is a departure from his original design for permanence. What God has joined together, let no man separate. What does that mean for us this morning? First, if divorce is a departure from God's original design, enter into marriage with permanence in mind. This morning, if you're not married, you hope to be married, you're engaged to be married, if you're going to enter into that marital bond, that marital union, know that you need to think about it with permanence in mind. Know that you're going to consider it, whatever it takes, I'm going to make this a priority. I heard a story about a woman at a beauty parlor getting her hair fixed as she listened to the conversation between her beautician and the 19-year-old beautician in the next booth. The younger woman was trying to decide if she should marry her boyfriend who was contemplating getting a tattoo with her name. The older beautician cautioned her by saying, marriage is one thing, but a tattoo, that's permanent. (laughs) When when we're talking about entering into a marital bond, you you go in knowing that it's permanent. You you are going in that relationship forever. How How do you do that? Number one, by taking your vows seriously. As you write your vows or you use the vows that you're going to share, take those seriously. It's not just going through the motions when you get married. You are telling that person, this is what I promise you before God and before all of the witnesses. You take those vows seriously. You know, last time uh, my brother-in-law came to visit Oregon, I got to have a long conversation with him as we were headed over to the coast. And one of the conversations we had was just his experience growing up and the effects that the divorce of his parents had on his life and his outlook on his own marriage. And he was saying, because of the effects that it had on me, he told me, I want to, I want to take my vow seriously to my wife. Now, that's what a brother-in-law wants to hear. Hopefully, he meant it. But when he said that, he was saying, listen, I've experienced the, the pain and the suffering that divorce has brought to me as a child growing up. And, and when it comes to my wife, even though I know marriage is difficult, marriage is hard sometimes, my vows to her matter. My testimony before the world matters because I, I made a vow before the Lord and before those who were present. So take your vow seriously. As we said before, prior, prioritize mar- premarital counseling. Take time to meet with somebody who can talk to you about some of the, the challenges that come with marriage and how to walk through that season of life. 
And then thirdly, we always want to invite you to attend a marriage conference of sorts. We've got a date night coming up on October 13th. In February, we'll have another marriage conference. You don't have to attend one here at Twin Rivers, but make it a priority to say, hey, we're going to invest in our marriage. And even if you're not yet married, it'd be great to go to a marriage conference and see what might be ahead of you. And so if divorce is a departure from God's original design, enter into marriage with permanence in mind. Secondly, if divorce is a departure from God's original design, God has the authority to, dis- to state when divorce is permissible, but also when it is not. In the end, this is a humbling reminder that whether it's divorce, remarriage, family, whatever subject matter we're going to talk about, we need to remember that God's word has the final authority on all matters to which it speaks. If we truly believe that God created heaven and earth and everything in it, If we believe that God is the author of marriage and he created it, then God has the authority to tell us what is acceptable and what is not. The reason we're here this morning, I pray, is that we have a desire to follow Jesus. And if you're going to follow Jesus, it requires us to follow him, not just as our Savior who forgave our sins, but our Lord who rules and reigns over our lives. And even when it doesn't make sense to us, what we are to say to the Lord through the power of the Spirit is, let your will be done. Let your kingdom come, let your will be done in my heart, in my relationships, in my marriage, as it is into heaven, because God, you have the final say on all matters to which you speak. This morning, if you say, no, that's not for me, you don't understand the circumstances I'm going through or the hardships I'm dealing with, I'm going to go my own way, the question is, have you surrendered your life to Christ or not? Is Jesus your Savior? The one you say, I'm going to receive forgiveness of sins, the promise of everlasting life. Is Jesus your King? The Gospel of Matthew affirms again and again and again, Jesus is the promised King of Israel. Jesus is the promised King of kings and Lord of lords who rules and reigns over all things. Shouldn't it start with us? If we are truly believers, heaven should be experienced on earth as we live out our lives through our attitudes, actions, and affections. Then thirdly, if divorce is a departure from God's original design, divorce should never be a first response, but a last resort when there are biblical grounds for it. In Malachi chapter 2, verse 16, we're told this, For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce, for it covers one's garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. Why does God say that he hates divorce? I want you to know this. God does not say he hates divorced people. It says that God hates divorce. And the reason he hates divorce is the same reason divorced people should hate divorce is because of what it does to you, what it does to your marriage, the way it rips you apart, the consequences it has on the family structure. And the reason God hates divorce and the reason we should hate divorce is because it rips two people whom God has designed to be in a lifelong committed relationship with apart. And so what we're reminded this morning is that divorce should never be a first response. It should be a last resort, even when it comes to biblical grounds of divorce. I want to share a few reasons why. One Christian author gives statistics in his book, Grace Gone Wild, and he says this, divorce dramatically increases the likelihood of 
early death from strokes, hypertension, respiratory cancer, and intestinal cancer. Astonishingly, being divorced and a non-smoker is only slightly less dangerous than smoking a pack or more a day and staying married. Divorce also disrupts mental health, especially for men. The suicide rate for white males goes up by a factor of four with divorce, and they have 10 times the probability of needing psychiatric care. This is just the statistics. Divorce takes a devastating toll on children. Children from broken homes are more likely to do poorly in school, abuse drugs, attempt suicide. We just see all of the effects that divorce can bring And that's why when we're talking about divorce, even when it's necessary, even when there are biblical grounds for it, it should never be a first response, but always a last resort. And so, as we get started this morning, what did Jesus teach on the subject of divorce? Divorce is a departure from God's original design, and God's design was one man and one woman in a lifelong relationship for life, permanence. Secondly, we get to continue to read that Jesus taught the next principle that divorce is permitted but not required in cases of sexual immorality. That divorce is permitted but not required in cases of unrepentant, persistent sexual immorality or adultery. We continue to read in verse 7, that the Pharisees have another question. They said to him, why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? Uh, They begin to quote scripture to him. Now God just, Jesus just gave the original design. Go back to the beginning. Go back, way back past these two rabbis, Hillel and Shammai. Go back to the very beginning when God created marriage. And then these Pharisees come back who are supposed to be experts in the law of Moses. And they say, hey, what about Deuteronomy 24? Where Moses commanded that they be able to divorce. Now, whenever someone quotes scripture to you, especially when they say, is this a contradiction or that contradiction, make sure you look it up because sometimes they, they say things that aren't actually there in scripture. And here they say Moses commanded it, but Moses never commanded it. He simply permitted it in the regulation of it. Let me read to you Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4, so we have some context. When a man takes a wife and marries her, this is in the Old Testament law, And it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her. That was the question in these two schools of thought. Does the uncleanness refer to some sexual offense? Does it refer to anything? It says he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house. So that's what they're talking about. When she has departed from his house and goes and becomes another man's wife, if the latter husband detests her and writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of the house, or if the latter husband dies who took her as his wife, then her former husband who divorced her must not take her back to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination for the Lord before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. What is Moses talking about here? Well, what he's saying here is that he's in order to protect these women who men were able to divorce, woman, wife was not able to divorce her husband, and to regulate it, and we're going to see in a moment, the reason this was put forth was because of the hardness of the heart, and they're regulating less divorce and more remarriage, is saying this guy may go out and say, hey, for whatever reason, it could be a legitimate sexual offense, he says, I'm going to put her away, I'm going to give her a certificate of divorce, and we're not going to be married anymore. 
she ends up getting married to another man, and a few months down the line, let's say, he says, you know what, I'm going to give her a certificate of divorce. The first husband is not to say, you know what, I messed up, and I think I'm going to remarry her and take her as my wife. It wasn't as bad as I thought. It says that's an abomination before the Lord. Why? Because it's making a mockery of God's original design for marriage. And so basically what is being said there is God gave permission in order to regulate it, not, um, not he did not command it. And so Jesus answers this way in verse 8, and said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives but from the beginning, it was not so. What we're told here is that, the, that divorce is often an indicator of the hardness of one's heart. Either the hardness of the heart of one spouse or the hardness of hearts of both spouses. As we see in our text, there are certain biblical grounds for divorce, where divorce is permitted in terms of adultery or in terms of desertion. And so what we're told in the text is divorce is not always sinful, but divorce is an indicator that sin has been present within that marriage. And so some people may be a victim of divorce more so than the other person because we're all sinners, right? We all fall short of God's standard and one person may be the major cause for the divorce, but sin is what leads to a departure from God's original design. And so the reason divorce takes place is because of sin and the hardness of hearts. And so as he continues to talk about that, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. What we're told there is that God's original design was that one man and one woman should be in a permanent relationship for life. Verse 9, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality, that term sexual immorality in the Greek is porneia. It refers to a wide range of um, um, any departure from, from God's original design for marriage, any kinds of sexual sin within the marriage. And so traditionally it's interpreted as adultery. But what we're talking about is any form of persistent, unrepentant sexual immorality. And so there is a continuous, there is an unrepentant spouse who says, I'm going to continue in this sin of sexual immorality and marries another, it says, commits adultery and whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. So what is Jesus saying there? Jesus is teaching this principle that divorce is permitted but not required in cases of unrepentant sexual immorality. In cases of unrepentant adultery, we get to see here clearly that is what's being said here. Now, Jesus is answering a very specific question here, but we can also go back to, we can scroll over to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, where we get to see the other um, basis for a biblical grounds for divorce. And I'd like to invite you there. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, I'd like to read to you verses 10 to 16, but our focus will be in verse 15. And this will kind of help answer some other questions that you might have on your mind on the subject of divorce and the possibility of remarriage. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10 begins and says, Now to the married I command, yet not I but the Lord, a wife is not to depart from her husband. What is, what is Paul saying there? He's saying, 
This is not my command. This is Jesus' command. And he gave this command, and we're reading it right now in Matthew chapter 19. He also is talking about what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5. But he's saying, now, now, not to the married I command, yet not I but the Lord. A wife is not to depart from her husband. Marriage, God's original design. One man, one woman in a lifelong permanent relationship. Verse 11, but even if she does depart... Let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, and a husband is not to divorce his wife. And so this is God's design, that you are one man and one woman in a lifelong relationship. But what happens when you divorce for unbiblical reasons? It comes up that for whatever reason, you separate and you end up divorcing that individual. The text goes on to say, but even if she does depart, even if she does divorce, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And so that's, if you have been divorced for unbiblical reasons, we're reminded first and foremost there's forgiveness and grace in Jesus. And so we can confess our sins in ways we fall short and have the Lord speak to us and meet us at the cross. But, but can I get remarried in that case? The text goes on to say, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to your husband. And so that is remain as you are or remarry your spouse. And so it says, and a husband is not to divorce his wife. Verse 12, let's continue to read. And it says, but to the rest, I, not the Lord, say. And so Jesus didn't specifically talk about this in Matthew 19 or in Matthew 5. So Paul says, let me tell you, if any brother, writing through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, if any brother has a wife who does not believe and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who is, does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. So the question might be presented, okay, you have two unbelievers. One of you becomes a believer. The question is, well, do I divorce my unbelieving spouse so I can marry a Christian? Paul says no. Because you have an opportunity to win that person to Christ. Verse 14 says, for the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. What is that saying there? It's not saying that automatically your spouse becomes a Christian or your children become a Christian, but it is saying as you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, as you have been transformed and changed and moved from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, as you are a believer and a Christian, not only are you blessed, but so is the unbelieving spouse. So are the children. It's this idea that if I myself received, well, let's say my wife received a large inheritance. She found out that she was going to get like, let's say a million dollars. And to some extent, if she gets a million dollars, I'm going to be blessed as well. I get to be blessed by the blessing that she has received. Listen, we've got an eternal inheritance in the Lord so that even if you come to faith and your spouse has not yet come to faith, it's going to bless that marriage nevertheless. It's going to bless those children nevertheless because you are being guided by the principles of God's word. But then verse 15 gives us the, the, the second Biblical grounds for divorce, it says, but if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. If you are a Christian, you come to faith, or you're an unbeliever, your spouse is as well, you come to faith and your spouse says, I can't stand you. 
I don't like you going to church. I don't like what you have to tell me about Jesus. I don't like anything about you and the way you're raising our children. I'm out of here. And what we're told here is that, that an unbeliever departs. Let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. So two biblical grounds for divorce, adultery and desertion. Verse 16, for how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? This morning, let me give you just a few takeaways in light of this principle because it's very relevant to us this morning. First, divorce is permitted but not required by God in cases of adultery and desertion. In cases of unrepentant, persistent sexual immorality. Secondly, remarriage is permitted but not required in three cases, adultery, desertion, and lastly, death. If your spouse should pass away, you have the ability to remarry. 1 Corinthians 7.39 says, A wife is bound by law as long as her husband lives, but if her husband dies, she is at liberty to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. And so when it comes to remarriage, it's permitted but not required in cases of adultery, desertion, and death. And that gives you biblical grounds for divorce and biblical grounds for remarriage. In Matthew, it told us in verse 9, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery, and whoever marries her is divorced commits adultery. How is that possible? Well, because in God's eyes, those two are still married. And if you are to divorce your wife or your husband for unbiblical reasons and marry another, you are committing adultery, and that's what Scripture Teaches us. So remarriage is permitted but not required in cases of adultery, desertion, and death. And lastly, improperly divorced and remarried Christians should stay as they are, but repent and be forgiven of their past sins. This morning, we're reminded that if you have gone through an unbiblical divorce, if you have gone through an unbiblical marriage that is not Set apart for the Lord. Should you divorce that person and then go back and go marry your previous spouse? No. The Bible says remain as you are. In Deuteronomy 24, it doesn't say, you know, if you divorced your first spouse and then you got married and then you're divorced again, that you can't remarry that first person because it's an abomination. And so stay as you are. But the invitation is deal with your sin at the cross. We're reminded that 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 if we, if, if there's no unpardonable sin, including divorce, even when we don't do it God's way, but God provides forgiveness and grace through the work of Jesus Christ. And maybe you're here this morning and you've never dealt with your sin at the cross. The invitation is to come and allow Christ to work in your heart and to move and help you move forward to love your spouse as best as you can and do it God's way. So improperly divorced and remarried Christians should stay as they are, but repent and be forgiven of their past sins. So first, Jesus taught that divorce is a departure from God's original design. Jesus taught that divorce is permitted, but not required on grounds of sexual immorality and also on grounds of desertion as we go to 1 Corinthians. And then lastly, Jesus taught about some who have been called to be single. Let's go ahead and read, finish up our text in verse 10. In verse 10, it says, And the disciples said to him, 
Jesus has just told them that God's design for marriage is one man and one woman for life. It's permanent. There, are, there is but one, as Jesus is teaching it, one biblical grounds for divorce, and that's persistent, unrepentant sexual immorality. And his disciples said to him, in the cynical fashion, if such is the case of the man with his wife, it's better not to marry. <laughs> if this is the case and, and you can't, Get out, and you're bound for life, even if this should happen or that should happen. Is it better not to marry? And Jesus, you think he might answer and say, no, marriage is my design. It's fulfilling. It's a blessing, and you are to enjoy it. He says, no, that there are some who are called to be single and some who are called to be married. Verse 11 said, but he said to them, all cannot accept this saying. What saying? That it is good not to be married but only those to whom it has been given. Only those who have the gift of celibacy. Only those who have the gift of the single life that we talked about sometime back in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. For there are eunuchs who were born thus from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. And so there are some who, because of the way that they are born physically, are unable to marry. Some who have chosen that lifestyle because of the work that they're in or others who have said, I'm going to remain celibate. I'm going to set myself apart for kingdom service so I'm not distracted by marriage. He says there are some who have chosen the single life because they've been called to it. The text concludes and says, he who is able to accept it. He was able to accept it. It's better to not be married. Let him Accept it. Now, elsewhere, 1 Corinthians, of course, we see that if you've been called to be married as a gift, be married. If you've been called to be single as a gift, enjoy the blessing of being single. But in all things, we are to submit to God's original design. If I could give you two takeaways as we wrap up our time together, it would be this. Number one, submit to God's will for your life. If God has called you to be single, remain as you are. If God has called you to be married and you are married, remain as you are or pursue marriage. And then thirdly, don't enter the process of divorce prematurely. As we began with that first statement, there are two processes you should not enter into prematurely, that of the embalming of a body and that of divorce. They both have involved with them death. So be sure as you walk through what God's word has to say on it. What does that look like to say, okay, you know, I'm in a difficult spot and I need to consider what those next steps are. Get godly counsel. The reason why God has provided the church, your brothers and sisters in Christ is to help you, help come alongside of you and talk to you about what God's word has to say about the truth. And that's why we have church leadership in the church. We have pastors and elders who are able to talk you through various circumstances in life where you say, what about this or what about that? When you're talking about the subject of divorce, I don't know about you, but I don't want to be the only one making the decision. I want God involved as we consider what's next, and I would like those who are, who are informed by the truth of God's word to talk about it as well. And then secondly, honor God's design even when it's difficult. Honor God's design even when it's difficult. I wanna close with these two illustrations. The first is an old story that illustrates the principle of honor within marriage. A drunkard husband 
spending the evening with his jovial companions at a tavern, boasted that if he took a group of his friends home with him at midnight and asked his Christian wife to get up and cook supper for them, she would do it without complaint. The crowd considered it vain boast and dared him to try, so the drunken crowd followed him home and made the unreasonable demands to his wife. She obeyed, dressed, came down, prepared a very nice supper and served it as cheerfully as if she had been expecting them. After supper, one of the men asked her how she could be so kind when they had been so unreasonable, and when she did not approve of their conduct, her reply was this, Sir, when my husband and I were married, we were both sinners. This pleased God to call me out of that dangerous condition. My husband continues in it. I tremble for his future state. Were he to die as he is, he would be miserable forever. I think it my duty to render his present existence as comfortable as possible. Not long after, her husband was saved. This morning, I want to invite you to honor God's design. Honor God's design for marriage. Honor God's design when it talks about permission but not requirement for divorce and when it comes to remarriage. I want to ask you this morning, I don't know where you're at. There are some of you in different seasons of life and different areas of ministry. And I just want to close with this last thought. I was talking to a gal this past week and she was sharing with me that, well, she gave me permission that I could share this. Years ago, when she was married and she later got a divorce, she shared that her husband had committed adultery numerous times. Not just one time, but again and again and again. And boy, her heart started to become hard. And she thought to herself, God, how can I be faithful to you in the midst of how I am being treated? And she felt as if God was just really speaking to her to pray for her husband in this way. She said what helped her was to pray not for him as her husband, but to pray him as the one Christ died for and offer salvation as a gift for him to receive it. And she said that changed her perspective. Can we take some time to pray this morning? Father, this morning we get to talk about a sensitive topic of divorce and remarriage and what you have to say on it. We're reminded this morning and affirm as a church that you are our final authority. We're reminded that you've designed marriage to be between one man and one woman in a lifelong relationship. And Father, what you've brought together, you have said let no man separate. I pray, Father, that we, you would help us honor your design, especially when it's difficult. I pray for wisdom and what it looks like to make decisions moving forward for those who are in difficult positions in their relationships, in their marriages, and in their families. But in all things, we pray that your word would be our guide and your Holy Spirit would, be the, the, would provide the grace that enables us to do what you've called us to do. Father, uh, I know that the number one thing we need this morning is in a list of do's and don'ts. What we need this morning is you. And so, Father, I pray if there's someone here today who has never given their life to Christ, that they can this morning, being reminded of what the good news is, that Jesus came from heaven to earth, that he died a sinner's death in our place, rose from the grave and offer salvation as a gift to anyone who would receive it, forgiveness of sins and everlasting life. I pray that they can express this, Father. 
I come before you and I admit my need for Jesus. I admit that what separates me from a holy God is my sin. I've missed the mark. I've fallen short again and again and again. But I believe that Jesus is he, who he claimed to be. He is the Christ, the Son of God who has come into the world. I confess Jesus as my Savior, the one who has forgiven my sins. I confess him as my Lord, the one I'm going to follow all the days of my life into eternity. Father, we're grateful for our time together. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.